Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is dead. A gunman appeared on scene as he gave a public speech. Shinzo Abe played a unique role in the U.S.-China-Japan relationship, different from his predecessors. Grant Newsham, senior fellow of Japan Forum for Strategic Studies, tells us why the leader angered China and what his passing will bring out. After the news broke, comments mocking Abe's death started appearing on Chinese social media, but one reporter went against that trend. And the U.S. ambassador to China is getting censored in his counselor country. It's happened three times in as many months. He responds. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is dead after a gunman opened fire behind him during a speech. He was campaigning for another candidate ahead of parliamentary elections. His assassination has shocked the world. Police arrested the suspected shooter at the scene. NTD's Trevor Piper has more. Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was shot from behind as he spoke to members of the public while campaigning for a parliamentary election in the western city of Nara. A local news service published a photograph of Abe lying face up in the street by a guardrail with blood on his shirt. People were crowded around him, one administering heart massage. He was taken to the hospital in cardiopulmonary arrest and showing no vital signs. He was declared dead about 5 p.m. local time. A doctor said he received deep wounds to the heart and the right side of his neck. He died despite receiving more than 100 units of blood in transfusions over four hours. Japanese Prime Minister Humio Kishida said he was left without words and deeply saddened by Abe's passing. We have lost a great politician who has made great achievements in various fields in order to open up the future of this country. Once again, I'm deeply saddened that we lost him this way. Japan Broadcasting Company NHK quoted the suspected shooter, identified as Tetsuya Yamagami, as telling police he was dissatisfied with Abe and wanted to kill him. In Japan, guns are tightly controlled. Media said the weapon was a homemade gun and that suspect Yamagami had served in Japan's self-defense force for three years until 2005. Abe was Japan's longest-serving leader before stepping down for health reasons in 2020. President Joe Biden said he was stunned, outraged, and deeply saddened by the news. Other current and former world leaders posted statements of tribute and condolences, including Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, and former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Reporting by Trevor Piper, NTD News. Amid outpourings of condolences from around the world, some of the responses from those in China have deviated from messages of respect. Part of that may have to do with comments Shinzo Abe made last year, which angered the Chinese regime. Referring to a possible invasion of the island by Beijing, he had said that a Taiwan emergency is a Japanese emergency, and therefore an emergency for the Japan-U.S. alliance. 
すなわち日米同盟の有事でもあります Taking a closer look, what did Japan's former prime minister do to anger China? And how does it play in countering the regime's threat? We spoke with Grant Newsham, senior fellow of Japan Forum for Strategic Studies and director of One Korea Network, to find out how that might change with Abe's passing. Grant, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Well, glad to be here. Thanks, Yuver. Thank you very much. So, what does Shinzo Abe, the former Japanese prime minister's assassination, mean for the region? So, not just Japan, but also Taiwan and the broader Indo Pacific? Well, Prime Minister Abe、uh, really deserves credit for having turned Japan away from this mindless pacifism, which is really ignoring the threats to Japan, to freedom, free countries in the region. He, he's the guy who turned it around. And after he stepped down, he continued to be a really a tireless proponent of a, a strong national defense for Japan, of a free and open Indo Pacific, which means the, the free nations getting together to protect their own interests, the, the things that、uh, have allowed the region to prosper.、And、he was also a strong supporter of the US Japan alliance and also support for Taiwan. And he did have a lot of influence, even post retirement. And so, following his death, there's already been a lot of reports about kind of the legacy Abe is leaving behind. And you mentioned that too. So, what did he do exactly in terms of China, especially?、Um, what he did is he set in motion、uh, sort of a、uh, sort of, uh, chain of, a, of activities that were going to improve Japan's national defense, its ability to defend itself、uh, and to defend its ideals. And what were those specifically? Well, first, he managed to reverse a decade of cuts in the Japanese defense budget. So, for every year of Abe's administration, he at least managed to get a small increase. And that was a huge change. He managed to change、uh, the, the interpretations of laws regarding so called collective self defense, which Japanese bureaucrats and politicians had used for years to handcuff the country so that it couldn't even do the most commonsensical things. To、uh, build up its defense forces. Abe got that changed. And now you see the Japanese military、uh, out and about、uh, all over the region. It does real training, it engages with other nations. And none of this used to happen until Abe got that done. And he pushed it through in the, in the, the face of really opposition from the political class, the commentariat.、Uh, and that took some nerve. He also got the US Japan defense guidelines changed. Uh, successfully、uh, had that worked out with the Americans. So now Japan can be more of an ally. It can provide real support to U.S. forces where before it couldn't.、Um, additionally, he, got, he himself went out all over the world and he spoke up for Japan.、Uh, and he, he, whereas Japanese politicians and prime ministers traditionally had been kind of quiet and they didn't go to many places, but he went out and he spoke up for,、uh, say, these democratic ideals. Uh, additionally, uh, you had him, he's the guy that started the Quad, the, this combination of India, Australia,、uh, Japan, and the United States. It's an informal security grouping now. But it was Abe's idea that he、uh, got going the first time he was in office in 2006.、Uh, that deserves credit for that. And the expression free and open Indo Pacific,、uh, that's something that came out of his administration. Uh, he also kept the, the Trans Pacific Partnership idea going after the Americans pulled out 
just before President Trump was elected. Uh, and that has been an important thing, both economically but also politically. And speaking of that momentum, Grant, do you see that continuing going forward, even without Abe around? Uh, I do. Uh, I think that it's pretty well taken hold in Japan's uh, political class, uh, even the Japanese military, uh, but really in the public at large. Uh, and, and interestingly, the public, Japanese public, has always, I think, had a better sense of foreign affairs than most of the Japanese politicians. Uh, and they understand the risks facing the country. And to them, it's simply a logical uh, thing that Japan will improve its defense, that it will be able to work better with the Americans. So I think this is a sea change, and one doesn't like to use those words. Uh, but as I said, if you've been around Japan a while, uh, today's Japan is practically unrecognizable uh, from what it was a decade ago. Uh, and it's also, uh, I think, important to remember that Japan is a, you know, really, it's been a force for good. Look at its uh, behavior since the end of World War II. You won't find a better, better behaved, more responsible nation uh, that has done its best to, uh, I say, be a good country that actually is a, is a positive force in the region and, and globally now. Grant, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Abe's death has become the top trending topic on Chinese websites, though some discussions on social media have turned hateful. One of the more extreme comments racked up huge numbers of likes and shares. It's a so-called hell joke, as labeled by Chinese internet users. Some users also compare the tragedy of Shinzo Abe to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. JFK served as the 36th U.S. president, but was shot dead nearly 60 years ago in 1963. Chinese Internet users even created images featuring the two leaders. Hundreds of thousands of comments and posts have mocked the incident. One commenter wrote they would eat sushi, a traditional Japanese dish, to celebrate Abe's death. Still worse, some Chinese stores hung banners suggesting they welcome his death. As Japan's prime minister, Shinzo Abe had maintained a tough stance towards the Chinese Communist Party. Beyond that, tensions between China and Japan have lasted decades, largely due to conflict between troops on July 7, 1937. That day was considered the prelude to the Second Sino-Japanese War. Abe's death came one day after that anniversary. But some Chinese people have strayed from that less-than-respectful trend of responses. Zen Ying is a Chinese reporter based in Japan. She praised Abe's considerable dedication to the China-Japan friendship while live-streaming the news. In the middle of her broadcast, she even started to weep. Now she's taking heavy criticism from her Chinese audience. But in reply, she said people should not revel in terrorism of any kind and that she would, quote, always stand firm on her values and be a good and kind person. The derogatory social media comments have gone both ways since the news of Abe's assassination broke. Before it was removed, another hashtag garnered attention on Chinese microblogging platform Weibo. It's translated as, quote, it's a pity it wasn't you. Those who used it were hinting it was a pity Abe's fate didn't befall Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping. The hashtag originated from the name of a pop song. Now, the otherwise innocent song has been removed from some music platforms in China, including a major one called QQ. 
Other platforms kept the song, but have turned off the comment sections attached to it. Xi Jinping had not commented on the situation ahead of our broadcast. A spokesman representing the Chinese Foreign Ministry said officials were shocked by Abe's death. Now, we turn to international diplomacy. U.S. Ambassador Nicholas Burns is once again getting iced out of Chinese social media. The latest instance marks the third time Byrd's statements have been removed from social media in his counselor country, after he took the position in April. He responded to it in a recent Twitter post, saying the PRC ought to allow the Chinese people to see what American leaders say, as the American people hear what Chinese leaders say. PRC is short for the People's Republic of China, the country's formal name. Some of Burns's earlier posts were deleted from Weibo and WeChat, two major social platforms in China that both have hundreds of millions of monthly active users. As for what Burns has said in the now-deleted posts, one shared a link to details about the NATO Military Alliance Summit. Two others mentioned comments from the White House and the U.S. State Department related to the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's return to China. Similar social media deletions tied to other U.S. officials have also happened repeatedly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's speech on U.S. policy towards China earlier this year faced a blanket ban on Chinese social media. Those statements against his speech from Chinese officials were widely spread across the country. What's more, the official account of the U.S. Consular General in Shanghai got entirely shut down on Weibo in 2012. U.S. Senator Rick Scott is taking a short trip to Taiwan this week. In the meantime, Beijing also sent fighter jets across the Taiwan Strait. It's a move Taiwan decried as provocative. Here's more on what's happening. U.S. Senator Rick Scott is on a two-day visit to Taiwan. After meeting with President Tsai Ing-wen, he told reporters that the world has changed since Russia waged war on Ukraine. I think what, you know, what Taiwan has to do, Japan has to, South Korea has to do, they have to continue to, uh, to build interoperability uh, with um, those they think will work with them to defend their freedom. They've got to continue to do more drills uh, to make sure they're ready uh, in case uh, Communist China does uh, or Russia or anyone else does the wrong thing. Um, so I'm going to do everything I can to be helpful. During Scott's visit, several Chinese fighter jets crossed the median line of the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan's defense ministry denounced Beijing's move as provocative and one which has seriously damaged regional peace and stability. The median line is an unofficial buffer zone between China and Taiwan. Normally, both sides stick to their respective areas, but in some cases, the Chinese Air Force goes beyond the dividing line. In the Pacific, the growing threat from China is also a cause for concern. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese raised the issue during his annual meeting with New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Under Xi, uh, China has changed its position. Uh, it is more forward-leaning, it is more aggressive. Australia's position is that uh, we will uh, continue to engage uh, and we want to cooperate with China where we can but we will stand up for Australian values when we must. We have seen a more assertive position uh, from China in our region. But whilst you know, our position is that we therefore, on that basis, shouldn't suddenly say to sovereign nations that they have to pick for whom their relationships are with, we are also very clear on our values and the way that we conduct those relationships. It should be the Pacific priorities first and foremost. They should be free of coercion. 
The annual Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting is scheduled for next week in Fiji. China's new security agreement with the Solomon Islands is expected to be a high priority on the meeting's agenda. China and Russia relations maintain strong resilience and strategic resolve. And China will support all efforts toward the peaceful resolution of the Ukraine crisis. That's according to remarks made by Chinese Foreign Ministry on Friday. Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov met with his Chinese counterpart Wang Yi in Indonesia's resort island of Bali on Thursday. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi said China and Russia have maintained normal exchanges and promoted cooperation in various fields while also casting aside any so-called interference. The two held bilateral talks ahead of this weekend's G20 meeting. G20, or the Group of 20, is an intergovernmental forum. Member nations include some of the world's leading economic powers as well as developing economies. Among them, the U.S., the EU, China, India, Russia, Japan, and South Korea. According to Russian state news agency TASS, no meeting is planned between Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov and his U.S. counterpart Blinken. Russia's deputy foreign minister said, quote, existing contacts via embassies and sporadic telephone calls are quite enough for us to work in detail on current issues with the U.S. Since the Russia-Ukraine war broke out, the U.S. has argued that Russia should be removed from the G20. President Joe Biden showed support for that proposal in March, saying, quote, my answer is yes, but depends on the G20. And as the war in Ukraine rages on, talks related to the conflict dominated the G20 summit. Let's take a look at what China is doing to secure its position. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi met Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wang on the sidelines of the G20 meeting on Friday. Wang said the meeting with her Chinese counterpart was a first step towards stabilizing the relationship, but added it would take time for Beijing to remove trade blockages on Australia. China imposed trade sanctions on Australian products ranging from coal to seafood and wine in response to Australia's ban on Chinese telecom giant Huawei, foreign interference investigations, and its call to investigate the origins of COVID-19. Speaking of the South Pacific, on his way to the summit, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi stopped in Myanmar, Thailand, the Philippines and Malaysia before arriving in Indonesia, working to fortify Beijing's ties in the region. What's more, China has sided with Pakistan in its opposition of India's plan to hold next year's G20 summit. China is working closely with Pakistan to build the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. India objects to the construction, happening in a disputed region in Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. The G20 includes large developing nations like India, Brazil and South Africa. These countries are sometimes skeptical of Western intentions and more open to offers from neighbors like China. Next, we'd like to address some feedback from our viewers. On Wednesday, we reported that Chinese carmaker BYD sold more cars than Tesla in the first half of this year and that Tesla can no longer be called the world's leading electric vehicle company. Some viewers pointed out that the Chinese company also sells hybrid cars, which run on a mix of gasoline and electricity. Well, Tesla only sells electric cars. We checked the numbers and almost half of BYD's sales in the last six months were of hybrid cars. Electric vehicles made up the other half. Coming up, a regulator from the Federal Communications Commission raises alarm. He says he wants TikTok removed from app stores. 
Two lawmakers push for a similar move. In a deal between the Vatican and Beijing, Pope Francis says he'd like to renew the agreement, which gives him the final say on how bishops are appointed in China. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A regulator from the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, wants TikTok removed from app stores. He's calling the video sharing platform a national security risk, citing the Chinese communist regime's threat and the app's Chinese ownership. That's as two lawmakers are asking another federal agency to look into the social media app. Here's more. Is the world's most popular app, TikTok, a national security risk? According to one Federal Communications Commission official, it's more than just an entertainment app. It functions as a sophisticated surveillance tool that is harvesting vast amounts of data on U.S. users. FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr is calling on Apple and Google to remove TikTok from app stores because of security issues, claiming the app collects personal data, like search and browsing history, biometrics, and location information, and in some cases, draft messages. That's a problem, not just a national security problem, but to me it looks like a violation of the terms of the app store. TikTok is owned by the Beijing-based ByteDance, which means the company is essentially under the control of the Chinese government, which the FCC fears can take data and infiltrate communications. A recent BuzzFeed report uncovered linked audio from internal meetings in which employees in China reportedly said they were able to repeatedly access U.S. user data. But TikTok insists all U.S. user data is stored on American soil. We have never shared information with the Chinese government, nor would we. Michael Beckerman, TikTok's head of public policy in the Americas, says the claim that TikTok is collecting browser history is simply false. TikTok is not a security threat, and we're doing everything that we can, going above and beyond, working with trusted companies like Oracle, talking to actual um, agencies in the government that are responsible for national security to make sure that this is cleared up. The two senators on the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee who are calling for an FTC probe are Democrat Mark Werner and Republican Marco Rubio. Vatican-China deal. Pope Francis wishes to have it renewed in October, despite criticisms on its ignorance on Communist China's human rights violations. Pope Francis is addressing the Vatican's deal with China. In a recent Reuters interview, he said he hopes the agreement with China on the appointment of Roman Catholic bishops will be renewed in October. The deal was introduced in 2018 and comes up for renewal every two years. The Pope says the agreement looks to ease a long-standing divide between two groups and two types of churches in mainland China. One of them, an underground church network loyal to the Pope. The other, the Communist Party-approved, state-backed official church. The deal is still provisional. It centers on cooperation over how bishops are appointed inside China and gives the Pope final say. Further details have not yet been revealed. Though the Pope says the agreement is not ideal, he added that the church takes the long view. Pope Francis said his appointment of bishops in China has been going slowly, which has been in progress since 2018. It is going slowly, but they are being appointed, as I like to say, in the Chinese way, because the Chinese have that sense of time that nobody can rush them. They also have their own problems, because it is not the same situation in every region of the country. It also depends on local leaders. 
There are different ones, but the agreement is moving well, and I hope that in October it can be renewed. Francis defended the deal as following the idea of working with what little is available and trying to improve it. He likened it to diplomacy, saying that when facing a blocked situation, you have to find the possible way, not the ideal way out of it. One of the most vocal opponents of the deal is the 90-year-old Cardinal Joseph Zen. He's the former Archbishop of Hong Kong and was briefly arrested there in May on a national security case. Zen has accused the Vatican of turning a blind eye to human rights violations in China, while the Vatican says it needs to have means to enter into dialogue with Beijing. In 2020, former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo urged the Pope not to renew the agreement, saying the Vatican endangers its moral authority should it renew the deal. We reached out to the State Department for comment. They said they're putting together a response, though it didn't arrive before airtime. We'll keep you updated when we get new information. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. The 2022 NTD 8th International Chinese Vocal Competition will be held from September 29th to October 2nd at the Merkin Hall of Kaufman Music Center in New York City. The competition is honored to have specially invited vocalists with the world-renowned Shen Yun Performing Arts to serve on its panel of judges. The gold award is $10,000. For more information, please visit vocal.ntdtv.com.